standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Some of you may have been listening to A Home of Our Own, a new Radio 4 series that started this week. In it, journalist and author Lindsay Handley explores Britain's broken housing market through the stories of 10 different homes from all over the UK and their occupants. And it's really interesting and insight-packed and you should all give it a listen. You can catch up on the iPlayer. So I got on the Zoom with Lindsay to talk about the vanishing dream of getting a foot on the property ladder for many, if not most, under 40s in this country. And Lindsay knows what she's talking about. She's the author of two great non-fiction books, Estates, An Intimate History and Respectable Crossing the Class Divide, both of which I'm given a hard recommend. So there's a plan. Listen to the podcast, listen to the radio series, order those books, have a nice cup of tea and wait for this all to blow over. I mean, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. First thing to say is a home of our own. Great job. It's a mix of social history, which I love, and tales from the UK housing market, which has been making me furious for like 20 years. So it's a real mix of emotions to be having with my lunch. Housing's become one of your specialist subjects. Did you pick it or did it pick you? Oh, I think it picked me, really. I think I was obsessed with my immediate environment without even noticing, really. I grew up on a great big 60s estate just outside Birmingham called Chelmsley Wood. I was born in the 70s. My nan, granddad and mum were all moved there from like inner city Birmingham at the end of the 60s. And it was still a new estate when I was growing up. And it had a weird combination of sort of feeling slightly utopian you know it was all based around it was mostly houses rather than flats actually there were quite a few tower blocks but we lived in a house laid around these sort of curly whirly paths this ancient bluebell wood was flattened to make space for like 20,000 houses and all these little houses are all centered around you know sort of really nice landscaping and quite uh, mature trees and stuff and uh, there wasn't many cars about so you know you played out Mm quite a lot and yet all the adults I knew seemed really kind of isolated and dissatisfied and felt like they'd lost something used to talk you know very 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 fondly about even though their old housing conditions were were really really dreadful they really missed the the places that they'd originated from in, in Birmingham and really, really struggled to, you know, to sort of appreciate the mod cons I had, but also to develop a sense that it was a permanent place to live in. So I did become obsessed with housing, actually. And then and then in my 20s, I spent most of my 20s writing a book, basically, about Chelmsley mm. Wood. But ended up, I ended up just sort of following my nose, really, just doing loads and loads of completely independent research into council housing, the history of council housing, like the political history of it, the social history of it. And there were so many testimonies that actually mainly women had collected, women who'd gone into studying you know, sociology, political economy and so on, but found that housing and community studies was the place where you could just, you know, encourage people to open up and just have all these incredible recollections of what it was like you know being moved from what were designated slum areas basically into you know these sort of very beautiful looking spacious looking estates 
but when I was 30, uh, my, my first book was published, which was called Estates. <laughs> the very <laughs> imaginative name, Estates, which was a, a sort of social and personal history of council housing. From that, I just developed, I suppose, a sort of line in, in doing writing about housing policy, political effects, the effects on people's lives of, of political policy, you know, around housing, especially social housing. Mm. And then when I was asked to do this series, it was really about how home ownership has declined in the last 10, 15 years and also how the loss, the, sort of the net loss of millions of council housing houses through the right to buy it just created created a, a whole generation of private renters, which is basically back where we started from. Yeah. Oh, there's loads in there to unpack. Let's start with the series. Yeah. I think it's structured really well, and I'm going to get to the structure of it in a bit. But how did you go about choosing the areas that you looked at or choosing the topics that you wanted to cover? It was a producer for BBC Radio, Lawrence Grissel, who had the idea for the series got it commissioned and then approached me to do it partly because I've done a similarly long 10-part series about the history of council housing Mm. for Radio 4 about four years ago. He had this idea of basically travelling up and down the country identifying a home almost like a sort of an archetype of a different home in every area of the country that we could possibly cover. This is in conditions of lockdown (laughs) as well shall I say. And getting a, as big a geographical spread as possible, as big a generational spread as possible. We wanted to speak to homeowners, private renters, people who couldn't afford housing at all, people who were, you know, statutorily homeless, people who were overcrowded, people on the waiting list, people who'd moved into new builds, people who had issues with cladding, uh, you know, having to pay for their own cladding. Mm repairs after after Grimfall Tower and then also basically to speak to some of the winners the sort of the accidental winners from this bizarre kind of tulip fever house price uh, rise you know the last 20 25 30 years and we managed to speak to somebody who he bought his council house for 17,000 pounds sold it in the late 80s and now lives in a fisherman's cottage that's now worth about a million and a quarter pounds. Yeah. From his £17,000. But was built so, for someone who... Yeah, who it was built for a fisherman. Yeah. It was built for a fisherman. <laughs> and the, the, it was basically a cottage that once would have smelled of pilchards. Mm. And it's now <laughs> worth it's now worth a million and a quarter pounds. So that was in Cornwall. We spoke to a much younger woman in South London who was still living with her mum. 11 years after she graduated. She's got a good job in the NHS. She's been saving very steadily for a deposit ever since but even now a a flat in Tooting a she can't buy a flat in Tooting even with a good deposit and b if she were to rent it would take up something like 60% of her take-home pay every month so she's so she's just basically sort of stuck in this limbo living with her mum and her mum is somebody who bought her council flat under the right Mm. to buy in Battersea very cheaply in 1990 bought this three-bedroomed terraced house in Tooting in 1990 on a single woman's salary and now finds herself again sitting on a house that's worth approaching a million pounds. And her daughter is just completely locked out of any kind of comparable situation. I feel very conflicted about this and I want to want to talk because, like you say, a few minutes into the first episode, the subject of council houses comes up. Right, yeah, yeah. 
you know, and it began under Thatcher in the 80s and it pretty sure it's going to echo throughout this whole series. It does, it and does. I have to put my hand up and say, I grew up in social housing. My parents bought using yeah. the right to buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But none of their three children could afford to live in the town that they grew up in. And the estate that we grew up on, yeah. which was social housing, is now essentially quite middle class. Right, yeah. Because nobody else can afford to yeah. live there. And a lot of people sold and moved on. I mean... The right to buy is surely the most consequential housing policy. Am I over-egging that? Is oh, I it? don't think you are, no. Do all roads lead back to that? I don't think every single road leads back to that, but I think I went into the series, making the series with, a, a, I suppose, a sort of a slight hunch that right to buy would be somewhere in the mix. And then it turned out that just about every person we spoke to was either a beneficiary of the right to buy or a parent who was a beneficiary of it, but that basically the following generation, that's people younger than me, I'm 45, you know, anybody under 40 was basically living in completely inadequate housing because because mm. of the right to buy. So yeah. the, main, the main problem with the right to buy was, is I don't, you know, I don't have a sort of grave ideological objection to the basic premise of it, you know, because it was about working class asset ownership. And... Even like it was introduced by Thatcher, but even Labour in the mid seventies understood that there were people living in council housing who had the means to get some kind of asset of their own and were prepared to offer sitting tenants in council housing the right to buy that house. But the way the Tories implemented it, one is that they offered massive discounts, absolutely ginormous discounts, you mm. know, based on length of occupation and all that. The discounts were almost like public utilities in the eighties. It was described as selling off the family silver. You know, it's like almost like yeah. taking them to almost like taking them to the charity shop. You know, you'd be absolutely yeah. daft not to take it up if you yeah. had the means. So it was made sort of an offer too good, too good to refuse. If you know, if you had the ability to pay a mortgage. But secondly, councils were then instructed or barred from using all the revenue mm. that they got from people you know buying the houses off, off the council were then barred from using that revenue to build replacement council housing so it's obviously ideological it was obviously intended to reduce yeah. the amount of social housing available you could have created quite a beneficial thing you know for people who wanted to take it up you could have created a generation of you know working class asset owners without diminishing the social housing stock but of course they did it in order to diminish the stock of social housing so that's where that's where all the problems lie really and it did turn out as throughout the making of the series it did turn out to be one of those definitive things really is the fact that any council housing that was sold off was never replaced one of the people that you talked to in Cornwall, it's a couple, yeah. a woman, I'm sorry, I should have written her name down. Yeah, Judith, yeah. Yeah, Judith, she says something in this. She actually openly says that she was part of the problem. And that's actually, I think, quite unusual from that generation who benefited mm. from it. Because I think, because of the way things have gone, I mean, my parents are the same. If I approach them with the conversation about this you get quite a knee-jerk response Mm. from them because it feels like blame yeah it feels like saying especially because of all the other stuff surrounding brexit and all of that sort of two-generational stuff 
that it does feel quite knee-jerk. It feels like, well, we were offered it, you would have taken it. If you were you would have done it. the same, exactly. exactly. Exactly that. And I, I do wonder whether I would do the same. Because I own a flat, but I shouldn't own a flat, if that makes sense. Because, I mean, I came from a working-class background. I live in Cambridge. I own a flat for two reasons. Number one, yeah. I bought a flat with a friend of mine. Yeah. Because that was the only way either of us were going to afford to do it. And the second thing was, I bought a flat in 2006. And people subsequently said to me, do you regret buying at the top of the market? And I said, no, because after that point, Northern Rock stopped offering people as much money as they did. That was the thing that saved us, that Northern Rock were prepared to lend us five times over our salary. (gasps) Nobody does that anymore. So uh, while that was a terrible thing, I benefited from that. So I wonder if that is an analogy to buying a council house. It kind of, it was a terrible policy, but it worked for me. Yeah, well, exactly. It's it's systemic, isn't it? I mean, you yeah. know, if 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 all the sorts of the political and economic encouragement is there, and plus, you know, people, you know, are often going along with the sort of the mood of the time. And when Thatcher came in in nineteen eighties, she just basically said, you know, let's do this. It's the eighties. We're all going to be on the make. Get with it. Be there or be square, kind of thing. Mm. Which is the sort of extremely populist Tory message that that turns out to be quite popular as well yeah it's not a sort of hair shirt message it's a kind of you know get with the get with the times guys Mm. I think the Tories are quite good at understanding when people get really really fed up and really really frustrated and feel held back by systemic problems and just think well you know sod the systemic problems we're just going to do what we can for ourselves yeah uh, that's what people end up doing but of course when people do it in their millions then that mm. in itself leads to a kind of systemic change or a really big kind of social change yeah and we, we were just talking about Alison Inman who we both know who has worked in housing for a, a, a many 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 years and, and she said to me something really interesting I don't even know if it was during an interview or she just said it to me personally but I'm sure she won't mind me repeating it when the council house sell-off first happened it was possible to go into a council estate and spot who'd bought a house and who hadn't because the ones that had bought the house were in good shape. They'd spent money on it, they'd invested in it, and the ones that were still council were run down. Yeah. And she said, now it's almost entirely the opposite. Yes. You can spot what a council house is because it's quite well done and all the others are now in the private market for renting and they're really run down which is terrible for communities, it's terrible for tenants. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. The way you structured this series, I think, is perfect. And and I'll explain what I mean there. Because, like you say, you start in Cornwall, where an influx of newcomers, often from London, is pushing up prices. And it's easy to then think, oh, bloody Londoners. But then your next stop is London. Yeah. Where you talk to, a, like you explained... A woman, a 32-year-old woman who cannot afford to get on the housing market. She's still living with her mum because London prices mean she's got no other choice. And London's problem is exacerbated by Greenbelt, which then makes you think, oh, you know, nimbyism. And then you go to Kent. Yes. I was wondering in what way that you think the national conversation about housing reflects the international conversation about immigration. Do you see that there's a link between the two? Because I feel that there is a sense of, you know, people coming from London 
or people coming from, you know, if you can't afford to move to London, don't move to London in the same way that we talk about people coming over here mm, and taking mm. our houses and taking our, not we, obviously, mm, yeah, 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 but part yeah. of the national conversation. Mm. Do you think there is a sort of a, a similarity between the two? I don't know about a similarity, but I, I suppose there are there are parallels in that political policy affects people's lives negatively and they look around them and then they find somebody to point at. You know, yeah. that's where it could. I think that's where the, that's where the parallels lie. And I think also it's a situation of manufactured scarcity, you know, where political choices lead to a scarcity that needn't exist. Mm. That then people think, you know, is a natural scarcity. And that, you know, the reason why resources are scarce are because, you know, it's because the population has increased or because there are... Um, you know, people with different accents suddenly around, or is that, or you feel yourself not to have much money, and then you sort of find yourself surrounded by people with lots of money. Basically, the way political choices then sort of set people against each other and make people extremely, yeah. you know, frustrated and rageful. Mm. With people buying homes in Cornwall with vast amounts of money, it's not necessarily always the case that they're from London. Anyway, I think mm. it's it's simply the sort of the perceived idea of incomers, and Cornwall overall, although it has this you know excessively expensive housing around the coast, is actually a really really poor county. Yeah, former mines, ex mines there. You know, there's there's areas inland that aren't as picturesque as the coasts and where people get really marooned where there's only really low paid work. It's inequality ultimately and that inequality is manufactured and, and that mm. sets people against each other too. But I think the thing that carried on being reinforced all the way through the making of this series was was a sense that housing has unnecessarily come to really dominate people's lives and not not for good reasons. The longer I spent making the series, the more people I spoke to, the more I just simply, you know, reinforced my belief, I suppose, that, that good housing is a basic right and it's withheld from people and, mm. and it causes masses and masses of avoidable stress. Yeah. I first became obsessed with the housing market, I would say, under the Labour government, you know, so early 2000s. Yeah. Because I worked for newspapers, I worked for a local newspaper at the time, and I, I live in Cambridge, which is an area which is, you know, very desirable to live in, very expensive to live in. Yeah. And we kept doing stories about great news, the housing market's booming, and I kept going into conferences saying, I don't understand why this is great news. I genuinely don't understand why we're presenting this as a, we are one of the most expensive places to live in the country. Woohoo! Rather than yeah. people who live here and grew up here yeah. have to leave because they can't afford to live here anymore. It's a disaster so, for them, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And also, my flat being worth more doesn't really mean anything to me. If, if I die tomorrow, it means something to who's inheriting off me. But if I can't afford to go anywhere else, well, you understand all of this, yeah. but people didn't, really didn't seem to understand it. And I, I actually wrote a letter, my flatmate and I, that we bought a house together, we actually wrote a letter to the Times saying... This is unsustainable. And we didn't mean it in a, this is unsustainable, the crash is going to come. Mm. In fact, we were probably why we didn't get published. <laughs> we, referred, we referred to property as middle-class pornography because the BBC really didn't help by throwing out all of these programmes about buying houses oh, and no. the homes under the hammer oh, and this kind no. of sort of fetishisation yeah. of, of property yeah. as, a, as a thing. But on the other hand... 
I have to say, historically speaking, the idea of home ownership is relatively new. But I did have a desire to own my own house that was way more powerful, I would say, or not my own house, my own Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was way more powerful than my desire to get married or have children, neither of which I've done. (laughs) It was was just a desire to, to... to own it and it be mine and the only way I can explain that is I think you know coming from a working class background I think it came from it offered me a sense of security that I had nowhere else in exactly in my life exactly does that make me part of the problem though the idea that I was so desperate to get on the housing market that I did sort of you know make it the be all and end all no like we were saying before I I think you're reflecting your times new labor definitely definitely pushed and pushed and pushed to increase home ownership and indeed that the highest ever level of home ownership was reached you know just before the crash while Mm. while labor was still in government it was like 75 percent of people now it's down to about 63 percent of people now own their homes but I suppose the question because I did exactly the same as you grew up on a council estate was desperate to you know sort of I don't know what the word is you know <laughs> live the dream I don't know yeah um, swallowed that kind of Kool-Aid and uh, you know went to university was desperate to own my own place precisely for the reasons that you gave for wanting that sense of security the question is is that at the time that we were buying our flats in in the in the 2000s had we sort of come to understand, had we internalised this idea that, that council housing couldn't offer the same kind of security? Had it been so stigmatised by that point, did we have a sense that although if you did manage to get a council flat, which you probably wouldn't have done as a single person anyway, no. you just wouldn't oh have God, done... Oh God, it sucks to be a single person, which is in the housing point yeah, of view. Yeah, exactly, which, which you wouldn't question, have done yeah. as a single person. But even if you had then you would have been thinking to yourself all the time, but I don't have any choice in where I get housed. Mm. You know, what what if I'm unhappy with my neighbours? What if it's in a block of flats and I don't want to live in a block of flats? I think it was that thing, that whole thing that, as I said, you know, sort of conditions of scarcity, you want to have the maximum amount amount of autonomy as possible. Mm. And so if, if the chance to own your own place did come along, then of course it seemed like the absolute obvious thing to do because you thought, yes... It's mine. Nobody's going to take it away from me. And I have a degree of choice over what it's going to be like. Yeah. And I can have pets. Oh, yeah. And I can have... Because it it's almost keeps you in rented accommodation, almost keeps you in this sort of slightly infantilised state in which you can't make life decisions about yeah. the area in yeah. which you live. Yeah. You know, what, what colour the walls are, what you can have living in there with you, be that, you know, family or pets or partners. There's exactly. so many sort of restrictions. It's... Yeah, I feel like it, it infantilised. I don't know if that's a fair word to use, but I, I just felt that I was really restricted in my choices. Yeah, and in a city where, and this would be the same in, well, it'd be the same all over, but certainly with Cambridge, in a city where the housing market was so crazy, yeah, that people were buying, renting, and then wanting to cash out, then we'd have to move out. Yeah, because the house would go up for sale. Yeah, and it of like course. just, yeah. I, I was yeah. so tired of living. From place to place. Yeah, and completely at the mercy of somebody else's decisions, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what was convenient to them and, yeah, all of that stuff. God, I'm so glad. I really feel for people who are in a situation now where they don't, they can't see a way out of that. Because, yeah, the feeling of of that sort of security is, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm sorry, that sounds a horrible thing to say to people who want it.
What I think is also very clear in this series is that government schemes designed to get people onto the housing market aren't working, aren't especially trusted, which I think is another key thing. Why aren't they working and what would work, do you think, in your expert opinion? Well, it's tricky. I mean, I asked housing economics experts all the way through the series, Paul Cheshire from the LSE, is an economic geographer and he's absolutely dead set on the necessity of just building, building loads and loads and loads and loads of new housing in order to sort of deflate prices by, by increasing supply. But there are so many other economists, you know, housing economists who, who think that basically it's a problem of policy and sort of messaging as much as as much as it is about you know the availability of land and the ability of housing so if you have something like the help to buy scheme you know where the government i think help to buy is where the government matches um mm. a percentage of your deposit is that right uh, or I offers think. interest-free loans as well yeah I think. Yeah. So help to buy is a help is a help with a deposit. Now I mean being helped with your deposit doesn't help people who, you know, as you say, around this time now, you know, mortgage lenders will only lend, you know, two point five yeah. three times your income absolute maximum. And at a time when so many people are on, you know, sort of enforced part time hours, minimum wage work, you know, generally quite low quite low earnings Mm. it's the discrepancy between the deposit you're able to get and then the mortgage you're able to get that that's that's what stops people from being able to buy a place so a scheme like that it kind of looks good on paper but in practice it's in practice it's of only really really limited help i mean ultimately the the one thing i think that would help (laughs) i mean i personally would nationalize landlords Oh yeah, I'll get, I mean, I, I say some things about housing yeah. that make people's eyes pop out. I'm like, I think it, you shouldn't be able to own more than two houses. I feel like yeah, there's a maximum yeah, level you know, of houses I mean, you should be able to to own. I mean, ba- basically, nationalised landlords. You know, if you're a private landlord, then you basically have to be part of a dedicated, specific kind of state-led scheme that puts, you know, puts very, very heavy caps on rent, puts very, very high onus on um, on maintenance. Of, of places you know doesn't allow you to raise uh rents above the rate of inflation and and so on the other aspect of this is really is a lot a lot of economists you know of housing argue that there is actually enough housing to go around partly a lot of the situation we're in has got a lot to do with the fact that a lot of a lot more people live in smaller family units and live on their own than did a generation or two generations mm. ago and so there needs to be more dwellings available because because people are split up into s- smaller groups but there is technically enough housing available it's that you know lack of investment in certain places and lack of well-paid work in certain places makes housing unaffordable for most mm. people even when it's available and so just building more housing isn't going to solve that problem so i think it has to be a com- you know it has to be a combined approach really there has to be more availability of social housing there has to be an absolutely drastic crackdown on you know on the growth of private landlordism you know to yeah. me it needs to be you know basically a state run scheme if you're not going to build more social housing at least make private renting you know a basically you know a, a, a properly state regulated scheme mm. and investing in people and investing in 
investing in people's skills and, and jobs that enable them to earn a decent amount of money. Low wages is behind, you know, so many people's problems now, not just high prices, but, you know, I'm going to start sounding like Boris Johnson if I carry on. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I definitely agree because if people will throw that argument at you and say, well, look at Europe. Europe's a renting culture. And mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, but have you seen the protections that they get exactly. in many parts of Europe? Have you seen like the rent caps that they get? If I knew that I could live in a place and I could probably live there for the rest of my life yeah. and the rent would the rent would always be affordable, maybe I wouldn't be so, so concerned about owning a house and the sort of sense of security exactly. that it has. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, again, it happens a lot in London. It happens a lot where I live is you get whole new blocks of properties, flats, luxury flats being built and loads and loads and loads of them are sitting empty. Yeah. And I just think we need to be we need to be taxing those people through the nose for, for owning and then leaving a property empty when there are desperate shortages no no absolutely no no i mean i mean forcing people you know literally banning people from leaving flats empty i mean it's it's absolutely grotesque the idea that you can build a block of flats and and leave it empty i mean it's just uh no no it it really is it really is grotesque and that's not just a problem in london you know i mean it's evident in manchester you know even you know some speculative blocks are going up in liverpool where i live you know that you can't ever imagine are going to be fully occupied well, our mayor in Liverpool has, has just basically been <laughs> de- deposed yes. um, because of, uh, you know, sort of extremely dodgy property shenanigans. And, it, you know, we always used to say, oh, it's the only game in town. It's the only game in town. It's the only way we're going to get revenue for the city if we let people put up these speculative blocks. But, you know, as we know, there are other ways to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Tony Blair was mm. quite the buy-to-let or he certainly did, or Sherry owned quite the oh, buy to yeah. let um, empire. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and it just yeah it makes me it makes me furious. I can't tell you how furious. This is why I can't have lunch while while listening to your uh, <laughs> <laughs> to your radio show anymore. I end up with rampant in- indigestion. <laughs> I've got one more thing to ask you. Your other specialist subject is class mobility, and you know you like I started out working class, now very much middle class which is a whole other conversation that I'd actually love to have with <laughs> oh, you another yeah, time. Oh, yeah, come back, yeah. Yeah, but since time is short, I have one question for you that I really wanted to ask. Like most working-class people I know in journalism, I got in through the door marked local journalism, and sadly, they don't exist anymore, or they, yeah. in many places they really don't exist. Do you worry, as, as a working-class person who did get into journalism, that it is essentially now unachievable for most working class kids i think it's quite a mixed story i think it's definitely the case that that my my eyes i think were genuinely opened when i entered national journalism you know as a freelancer i've never actually had a you know an actual job on a newspaper but but i've been a freelance writer for newspapers for about 15 nearly 20 years actually uh, and i think i was actually staggered by the level of uh, <laughs> the level of privilege and nepotism and just sheer sort of winging it really you know if you're posh enough you can wing it yeah you know just this just the sheer level of entitlement expressed by so many people i met in journalism but I've, i think i've always managed i think we find each other you know i've always managed to find just enough people from similar backgrounds mm. to make it feel like a, com, not completely a sort of a lonely enterprise but at the same time in terms of now 
you know, I mean, I was very good friends with Dawn Foster, the journalist um, for The Guardian and Jacobin, who who so sadly died um, in July. And it was one of our sort of bonding. It was one of the things that sort of bonded us together was a knowledge that because we both worked at the liberal and going on lefty end of journalism, you know, both writing for The Guardian a lot, I think we both entered that kind of world that thinking maybe it was slightly different. That maybe because The Guardian in particular, you know, offers bursaries and does some sort of outreach towards underrepresented groups in journalism that somehow things were different. But I think we've we've both had the experience of kind of when an institution that you feel should be different then turns out to be just the same as the others and in some ways possibly even worse, then it's even more of a shock. So I don't know if that answers your question really, but but I think it feels to me it's certainly no easier to to enter journalism from a working class background than it was, you know, when I started out twenty five years ago. Whether it's harder is 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 quite difficult to assess. I would say that it's basically impossible to get a staff job, mm. you know, and therefore have security of income and so on, you know, and the chance of career progression and so on in journalism. Now, if you're not from a background that has not just masses of money behind you, but also the sort of the cultural and social capital, you know, like mm. knowing people, knowing how to work things, knowing how to phrase things in the correct way to get the kind of jobs you want. Yeah. Because of the internet, I think there are lots more opportunities for people to get a get a reputation for writing that hopefully can lead them to paid work in freelance journalism. But freelance journalism is really insecure. It's really impecunious. It makes you really, really paranoid because, A, you don't know when your next job's yeah. coming from, but also it just relies on these in-networks. And I think possibly journalism starting to give an impression of being a more open space. But it's those it's those closing of, of in networks where people sort of share insider knowledge that can only come from already being posh that mm. I think is the really yeah. insidious thing. That that, that yeah. even if you're from a working class background and you do get in, then it's it's the it's the sheer kind of the hypocrisy and the the gatekeeping nature of it that, that just goes against all your principles as somebody who comes into a world thinking thinking there's a chance to open it up for everybody you know yeah class is one of those areas where it's still one of the few areas where people seem to talk with confidence about something that they don't know about (laughs) (laughs) you know we've, we've got to a point now where men aren't supposed to espouse about women and white people aren't supposed to espouse about people of colour. Yeah. And that's all a brilliant thing. Yeah. There's no point in me sitting here as a straight person telling yeah. anyone what it's like to be gay. Yeah. But yeah, 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 so many sort of spokespeople for mm. the working classes are actually incredibly middle class themselves. And I, I, I find that quite frustrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah really yeah, frustrating. Because yeah, yeah. we, we, the working class will only sort of improve their circumstances with the cooperation of the 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 middle classes so it's great that there are people who care but I I just think sometimes I am in that difficult position where I am no longer working class in that sense so so I sometimes have to wonder whether I check that I know what I'm talking about you know but I have siblings I have cousins that are still very much working class people so you kind of live in this odd hinterland I think it's realizing that that's a strength though you know like rather than feeling like it's a deficiency and that it's a kind of limbo 
I think I think if you can find a sort of a way to sort of bridge those different aspects of your experience, yeah, then you know it gives you a real. It's sort of, you know, if if you're going to write and talk about this stuff in a sort of public sphere, then it then it just then it does actually sort of give you an edge because you know what you're talking about from a number mm. number of different perspectives. Agreed. Yeah. Oh, this has been brilliant, Lindsay. Perhaps um, we will have you back to talk about class because that is my current. <laughs> sort of well I say my current is as current as in since about uh, 1997 yeah yeah Yeah. it's been my it's been my favorite talking point and I I think it's it's really interesting at the moment so yeah but this has been brilliant people should definitely listen to a home of our own because I think it says in a very short period of time it says a huge amount which is really impressive oh thank you that's great Standard issue for all women.